Hello, my friends. Eliana Light here. Welcome back once again to the Light Lab podcast. So glad that you are able to join us as we play with prayer and hold the gems of our liturgy to the light. I'm recording this at 10 p.m., which for those of you who know me, and I'll tell you <laughs> if you don't yet, um, I'm not really a night person. This is later than I usually stay awake. Certainly the latest I have ever gotten my microphone out and my headphones on, but that's because I'm about to embark on some really exciting travel, at least for me, because I love conferences. <laughs> Anytime we get to gather together to learn, to sing, to be, to meet each other and be in community is exciting for me. So I'm doing this now. <laughs> Late at night, you get to hear me headed tomorrow to a gathering that the Covenant Foundation is putting on. Really grateful that they are supporting the first ever Tefillah Teachers Fellowship that the Light Lab is doing, bringing in 15 amazing fellows from all over the country to immerse in and explore art philosophy and what that means for themselves and what that means for the students that they teach. Then after some lovely being with friends, I'm going to Havana Shira, the incredible song leader and prayer leader gathering that really kind of kickstarted my song leader journey before I went to Hava. Ten years ago, I didn't know what a song leader was or that it was a job you could have. And now it's my job and I love it so much. <laughs> I'm so, so excited. I'll be with Cantor Ellen Dreskin in person. We're gonna miss Josh very much. We're gonna Photoshop him into to the picture we've decided. But speaking of Cantor Ellen Dreskin, she was the one who first brought today's guest to my attention. Already last year, she said, you know, Rabbi Toba Spitzer has this amazing language around metaphor and God language and these different metaphors that might replace the dead metaphors that are prevalent in our liturgy. If you're like, what's a dead metaphor? What does this mean? Well, she goes into it in our conversation, our interview today. Rabbi Toba Spitzer has served Congregation Dorshate Zedek in West Newton, Massachusetts since 1997. She is a past president of the Massachusetts Board of Rabbis, the co-chair of the Massachusetts chapter of Trua, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights. She is a popular teacher and writer on a wide variety of topics, including new approaches to Jewish theology, the sacred use of money in our everyday lives, and changing the conversation around Israel-Palestine. For more information about Rabbi Spitzer and her amazing book, God is here. You can visit rabbitobaspitzer.net. Of course, we're going to link to it in the show notes. I have recommended this book to almost anyone. And friends, you might know that I have a bit of a thing for God language and the way that she talks about it, weaving in such incredible philosophy, but also her own life lived experience. Every chapter ends with practices. We're going to get to experience one together on the pod. But if you don't already have a copy of God is Here, um, go check it out. I hope you enjoy the conversation that Cantor Ellen Dreskin and I had with Rabbi Toba Spitzer. Welcome 
Welcome, Rabbi Toba. So glad to have you here. I am happy to be here. And also welcome, Cantor Ellen Dreskin, regular podcast co-host. So glad that you're here and also that you made this interview happen. I am particularly excited to be here today. Uh, so excited. What an incredible group in this. I was going to say Zoom, but we're using this platform called Riverside now, which is a bit more of a mouthful. But so great to be on the Riverside with all of you, <laughs> with both of you. Uh, Rabbi Toba, I want to start where we usually start here, which is when you were a kid, what was God to you? Not did you believe in God, but when you heard that word, what did you think that meant? That's a great question. I have no idea, <laughs> but I seem to have avoided the big man in the sky that, you know, so many of my contemporaries, uh, you know, got stuck with. And I'm saying I don't know because I, I know that I think I was very spiritually curious as a kid, but I grew up in, I grew up in a Jewish home, but without any God talk in it. My mother had sort of fled a, a somewhat dry and meaningless Orthodox upbringing. My dad had grown up reform. And so we were not observant, but, you know, we lit Shabbat candles. And I, beginning after, in the summer after sixth grade, I went to a socialist Zionist summer camp, Habonim. And then also in sixth grade, we got involved in the Verbrengen Chavura. This is like circa 1974, 75. So the very early days of the Chavura movement, this sort of funky alternative member-led thing. So I think I, all of which to say, I think I was exposed to a lot of different ways to connect to the divine without it being called God. You know, and and Fabrengen was an interesting combination of the, I think they just got whatever prayer book they could find. So it was like these old Orthodox prayer books that had no transliteration. So I would just like spend most of my time trying to keep up, you know, but the Torah discussions were very lively and alternative. And I just, and people there were very serious. My guess is, I mean, I was a kid, so they looked old, but I'm sure they were all their twenties and thirties and, you know, were very intent on, on what was going on. And so I think that really appealed to me, a sort of intensity. Father was very connected to nature. So I think I got connected, you know, to a sense of the sacred in nature and my, you know, and I, was very intrigued by, you know, books about Native Americans. And I was, I think, intrigued by that path of spirituality. So I think in all these different ways, I I got exposed to a sense of the divine without a lot of actual God talk, but I was comfortable with it. I don't, and so I, maybe it was a power, a process, a force, or something, like definitely not a person. I think somehow I avoided that. And I have a very distinct memory. I think I was maybe in 10th or 11th grade in one of my counselors at Habonim Camp said, Toba, how can you be a socialist and believe in God? I said, I don't know what I do. So, <laughs> somehow I, I reconciled all of those things. So I feel very blessed that I, I never had a sort of you know, religious school experience that shut me down the way some of my contemporaries, you know, how that occurred with them. So I feel quite blessed in that, in that regard. Can you say maybe a little bit how, about how that turned into a path toward the rabbinate for you? That's a, you know, that's another great question. I, so I entered rabbinical school when I was 30. I searched my, uh, I talk about this a little bit in the book, but I, you know, I searched my journals for any like, you know, hint of rabbinical school and couldn't find it. I think my path to rabbinical school was much more about sort of community organizing and politics, at, at least, you know, sort of explicitly. I was sort of in the lefty world. I was not happy with what was going on in, you know, in the sort of nonprofit lefty world in DC that I was a part of after college. I felt like organizations that spouted wanting to change the world, but weren't treating their employees, my friends very well. And I remember hearing a, a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. One of his not so famous speeches then, um, 
And I just remember thinking that's the language I want to be speaking, like a morally grounded spiritual, not like a Christian language, but a morally grounded, spiritually grounded language to, from which to do social change work. So that's what led me to the rabbinate. I think I did not think of myself as a spiritual leader at all. I don't think I thought of myself as particularly spiritual. So I think that's what the five years of rabbinical school was about, was getting more comfortable with that part of myself. Yeah. And how did you find in rabbinical school, you were able to talk and learn about God more directly or perhaps less so? Yeah, that's so interesting. So I think it's very different now. So I, I entered rabbinical school in 1992. And I think my classmates and I were sort of like, why aren't we talking about God more? <laughs> I remember, it's totally different now, but I, I remember go, I did, I took myself on a little retreat to a, a Quaker, um, a Quaker retreat center, Pendle Hill outside Philadelphia. And they were just showing me around. I was going to be staying in this little hut by myself. And I just asked them, what do you do here? And they said, oh, you know, we rent it out to different people and seminary students come here, you know, to sort of do spiritual direction and spiritual development. And I was like, oh, you could be a seminary st student and be doing spiritual <laughs> development. This was not happening in Jewish seminaries, you know, in the early 90s. Now, now there's spiritual direction. There's much more. But a friend and I actually started our own little our own little study. We called it Mud Wrestling with God. Like, it's like our own. I think we were really wanted to be doing something. But yeah, it was sort of, we were talking about it. Obviously, we were reading Torah. We were reading rabbinic texts. But it wasn't part of our formation at the time. And I mean, again, that, that has really changed. I mean, I was in the first, I was in rabbinical school when they first introduced any kind of chaplaincy training. Like it was, this was like the nineties, it was just starting. And, and the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College where I was, I think was the first seminary to like be doing that, you know? And, and again, it's now it's, I think, common everywhere, but yeah, I mean, so it was probably happening more in Jewish renewal worlds and maybe in the Lubavitch worlds, but anything in between, it, it wasn't happening then. So yeah. But for me, I think I was very influenced, and this is really, I think, led to the book ultimately, was Mordecai Kaplan, the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism. And, and his, he talked about God a lot and was very adamant, you know, now talking about his writing in the 20, 1920s and 30s and 40s, very adamant that a, a God concept had to make sense to people. It had to align intellectually as well as emotionally and spiritually. And so my search was like, okay, so what is the God language that's going to work for me and people like me, i.e. highly educated people grounded in science, uh, you know, who are not going to believe things that don't make sense to them. So that I think I was intrigued with all of rabbinical school. And part of what I think brought me to the Reconstructionist movement was Kaplan and his willingness to wrestle with this. You know, we're talking now a hundred years ago, but he was very very uh, forward thinking in that way. Very much. And it sounds, I'm hearing themes of kind of a gap, right? In your upbringing, a gap between your spiritual inclinations that you really felt and this thing we called God that we didn't really talk about. And then even in rabbinical school, the gap between we're learning about liturgy and we're learning Torah, but then we're still not talking about God. And I'm, I'm wondering, you shared a couple ways, but how else in rabbinical school and in your early rabbinate, how did you attempt to bridge that gap for yourself and for others? I don't, I can't, it's a good, it's a great question. I, I think probably in retrospect, just by learning, you know, just by exposing myself. I remember Rabbi Rami Shapiro came and did a mini course and he was talking a lot about God. So taking a mini course with him, you know, I was blessed to be in rabbinical school at the same time as Rabbi Shefa Gold. And so, and she was running classes. So I mean, not for the school. She was on her own 
doing, you know, doing so going with her. So I think part, even though I didn't really identify as Jewish renewal and I'm much more like a Litvak, I'm much more, you know, sort of, <laughs> I guess, not so funky in my personal aesthetic. I was drawn, I think, to people who were exploring these things. So I think that's, I don't know if I would have named it then, you know, I think I was just interested and intrigued, but I think that was, that was part of it, you know, and then some of it was explicitly learning, I, you know, and, and I really, um, again, I, as I said, I, I really entered rabbinical school coming from a social justice commitment. And again, there was nothing in any rabbinical school at the time explicitly teaching about you know, social justice and Judaism. Like that was not on the menu at all. And then now it is. So, uh, a classmate now, now colleague of mine, Lena Zerberini, and I started our own, we did our own independent study, you know, Jewish liberation theology. Um, so there was that aspect as well, not just the sort of about spiritual practice, but also about how, where is there a, you know, a theological grounding for doing social justice work in Judaism? I did a, Rabbi Arthur Waskow was my first Torah teacher when I was 11. And then he uh, was in Philly when I was in rabbinical school and he's still there. And, you know, I did an independent study with him. So I think it was partly just search, searching out opportunities for learning, you know, and again, I, I'm not saying the curriculum didn't deal with it at all, but I think I added the pieces that, that I needed as, you know, as I, in, in those five years of study. You mentioned earlier about when you were a child and everything was in Hebrew and you were, you said, and you know, really then I was just trying to keep up. And so I'm curious about the role of ritual in, in your spirituality and how that, and, and the role of prayer has evolved for you. Yeah. Again, I think I was drawn to it. I have a, I have a very clear moment. Like I remember, I think I was in eighth grade. And we had gone to Fabrengen. We didn't go for Shabbat. We went for high holidays. So we, we weren't really members of Fabrengen, but my, my mother had started a, a parent-led religious school uh, with Art with Art Waskow. Um, so we were connected to Fabrengen through Arthur. But we would go there for high holidays. And I remember being at Kol Nidre services. I'm pretty sure it was Kol Nidre. And the service ended, and some of the people were just sort of there, and they had their talit, their prayer shawl over their head, um, and they were just like in quiet afterwards. And I remember sort of like wanting to be them. I was like something that me really was yearning. And then we went home, and it was this clear night. I remember this very clear memory of standing in the bottom of my driveway, you know, in you know suburban DC, and thinking, oh, I feel sort of cleansed, you know, I feel sort of like something has happened. So I, I knew ritual, you know, was was powerful. And I think I had my own rituals. I spent a lot of time in the woods with my dog. You know, I think that was a ritual for me. I went <laughs> again at, at this Habunim camp, which was completely secular, but I was there in the seventies and on Shabbat afternoon, they, first of all, Shabbat was the first time I'd ever experienced real Shabbat was at camp. And even though it was a secular Shabbat, Shabbat was different. It was quite magical. And, and the, the counselors would offer different things you could do in the afternoon. And there was one called Playing Dead. And what you would do, you'd go to the little Sifriah, the little library, which was basically a shack with some books. And they would play like bootleg tapes of Grateful Dead concerts. And <laughs> there were like, <laughs> and there were two rules. Uh, you couldn't talk and you couldn't fall asleep. And we'd lie there for like three hours, like listening, you know, wow. so I was like, whatever. I was like, 12 years old, <laughs> but it was clearly like, this was a religious experience. It was a religious experience for the counselors who were like all of 19 and 20. And we were like, listen, so I, again, I think there were all kinds of things that were like, you know, were rituals. And again, I, I couldn't have named it at the time, but definitely were feeding, feeding something in me, you know? So yeah, playing dead. I still remember that. It was great. <laughs> I feel like you were very, you know, open how wonderful that you had exposure to these innovative kind of rituals and and always feel like you had the permission which is not so 
normal or usual, I guess, to go out, to look outside the box and to bring things from outside the box back in and understand that it was all part of, sounds like for you, one thing. Yeah. Going on there. No, I do feel blessed. And again, thinking back, I think, you know, in my, I think my, my parents were probably on their own journeys. My mom certainly was, you know, and and my dad in his way. So yeah, I think, yeah, there was no box to be in, you know, and, and I think for that reason, even though I, you know, I, right after rabbinical school, I started going regularly to, you know, Buddhist meditation retreats while I've learned other practices like Tai Chi and Buddhism. I never sort of had to, I mean, a lot of my friends, like it was interesting, a number of my rabbinical school colleagues, you know, had sort of had periods of, oh, I was a Buddhist for a while, or I was a Wiccan, or I was a pig, whatever, like they had gone out, or I was Orthodox, whatever, they'd gone like searching and then come back in a way to like liberal Judaism. And, and I never had to go that far. You know, I, I feel like because I was exposed, but didn't have to like reject anything. So it all, it all sort of felt integrated. And again, and I give, and I think being part of Fabreng and growing up this very progressive Havura, I mean, I, you know, on Simchat Torah, like we would just go take the Torah and go in the middle of Mass Ave in DC, which if you know DC is a major street and just dance in the middle of the street. It wasn't like the, at the police or anybody were shutting it down. We just did it, you know, or, or when the, when DC, there was a, a ballot measure to like abolish the tax on bread and milk and they sang Hallel. So like I got, I was getting a very basic message that like social justice is connected to spirituality. Spirituality is connected to social justice. And and again, and as you said, Ellen, there's a ritual piece. We're going to sing Hallel when this happens. So I was getting a lot of really, po- I mean, I, again, deeply grateful, a lot of positive messages. You know, I think growing up connected to the more alternative Jewish scene in DC in the seventies, and then I came back to DC after college and reconnected in the early 80s was was really quite a blessing. That's really powerful. I'm also hearing from you something I've seen in my own life, like I say, not flippantly, and it certainly condenses it all, but that reconstructionism in Kaplan gave me an idea of God that I could understand and think about. And renewal and Reb Zalman gave me ways to pray to that God. Cause it can be hard to pray to that God if it's if it's only intellectual. And so I'm wondering, I love these stories kind of from your childhood and young adulthood and early rabbinate about about that particular gap, the intellectual and the spiritual, and maybe bring how that brought out an interest in God language for you. Yeah, and I think that's a, maybe that's a way I'll I'll, I'll enter into talking about the book because I, I think that that leads right into um uh, into God is here. Yes, I think there was an intellectual piece because, again, I, I agreed with Kaplan that, you know, people, you know, would see liturgy or see claims about the divine and not be able to stomach it and then just leave religion altogether. Or I, I was seeing it in my congregants, you know, and I was serving this, you know, highly educated community in Newton, Massachusetts, and knowing how much an obstacle the liturgy, the, you know, the liturgy was, the English translations and the and some of the God language. So, which led me for a while to process theology. So Kaplan Kaplan was not a systematic theologian, but he knew the work of Alfred North Whitehead, who was a pro, you know who sort of founded what was is called process thought, and then followers of, of Whitehead started something called process theology, which is predominantly a Christian school of theology. For a while, I was very interested in that, and I wrote a few articles, and I sort of thought I'd found the answer: God as process. And again, and, and Kaplan referenced this, but it was a little more systematic in process theology, and I taught it, and I wrote about it, and I think there was that question, Eliana: How does one? pray to this, but there was a little bit of an answer there because if God is, is, is possibility or the sense of becoming, there is a way to, 
connect to that. But I, I don't think I was taking that question as seriously because during all of this exploration, I was always, I was pretty comfortable with the traditional liturgy. It's not like I needed to make radical changes. I mean, I might switch the gender of God up just, you know, to keep things fun. But, you know, and I explored, you know, Mar- Marsha Fox liturgy, which is a, a very imminent sense of the divine. So I think I was thinking about prayer, but also just doing the prayers and doing my own, I call them, you know, mental liturgical gymnastics while, you know, while saying the traditional liturgy, whatever was going on in my head. And then I came across this book, uh, and I talk about this in, in the introdu- in the you know first couple chapters uh, of um, God is Here. Uh, and I, I was familiar with the work of George Lakoff, um, who's a, a cognitive linguist, but I came across this book called I as an Other, and I think in the early 2000s, and the author makes the claim, James Geary makes the claim, it doesn't make a claim. He he summarizes really the work of cognitive linguistics beginning in the 80s, you know, into the early 2000s. The the claim that sort of as embodied humans, because of the way our brains work, we can really only apprehend reality through metaphor. So when we, especially conceptual metaphors. So when we think about or try to access big things like time or love or life or emotions, we use metaphor. And metaphors are always grounded in our embodied experience. And in the beginning of the book, Gary uses this uh, analogy of volcanoes to, to talk about metaphor. So an active volcano, an active metaphor is a metaphor that you know is a metaphor. So I, I think the example I use in the book is a line from a Mary Oliver po- poem, the dark hug of time. So you read that and it's poetic, it's a little weird, and you know that time can't really hug anybody. And that's what active metaphors do. They just get you thinking. Then Gary talks about dormant volcanoes, dormant metaphors, which is a metaphor. When you hear it, you know it's a metaphor, but you sort of can, because you're familiar with it, you don't have to explore it. I think one example he uses is I'm up a creek without a paddle. So when I say that, you know I'm not in a creek or sitting in a boat without a paddle, but you also know what it means because it has meaning in in our culture. And then finally, he talks about an extinct volcano and, an ex- and extinct metaphors. And George Lakoff and um, Mark Johnson call these metaphors we live by. And an extinct metaphor is a metaphor that's so embedded in our experience and in our consciousness, we have no idea it's a metaphor when we use it. And some of the examples of these are something saying something like, I see what you mean, which is grounded in the metaphor, seeing is knowing, and it's based in an early infant experience that if you don't see something, it's not there. So seeing is knowing. So I see what you mean means I understand you. It has nothing to do with visual sight, but people use it. Even people without visual sight use that metaphor because we all know what it means. You know, it's, it's so grounded in our experience, in our sort of collective experience. She's a very warm person, you know, comes from, again, from an infant experience of being held and having, you know, sort of physical warmth translate into a sense of, of emotional connection. And Lakoff and Johnson postulated this in 1980 by looking at looking at language. And then later in the, in the 90s, neuroscientists were actually able to see parts of the brain connecting. Um, so that when a person you know, thinks about kicking a habit, the metaphor of kicking a habit, the part of their brain that activates when they actually kick, you know, is activated, that actually, you know, sorry, the part of the brain that, you know, is activated when you actually kick something is activated in that metaphor. So I suddenly realized when I read this, ah, the goal is not to find the way to talk about God. It's not that God is a process. That's just a metaphor. And you can't actually have just one metaphor. You need lots of metaphors. And then I think we can come back to prayer because different metaphors for the divine or for anything speak to different aspects of our experience. And so what prayer might mean, you know, when I'm in crisis is very different than what prayer might mean when I'm joyful or 
um, when I'm engaged in social change work, you know, or when I'm joining in, in community in song. And each of those different experiences of, of, of prayer, of, of ritual, might connect to a different metaphor for the divine. And so that really started this process that ended with the book. And so I started exploring different metaphors, found that Jewish tradition is rich with metaphors, which we have in our liturgy, we have in our biblical texts. And I think we just weren't taking them seriously, maybe, or we were taking them seriously as poetry, but not as actual ways to connect to the divine. And that's really what the book is. It's an attempt to say, okay, what, what, what happens when we experience God as water? What happens when we experience God as rock? or as becoming, or as voice, you know, or as cloud. And then that led to new explorations. So that's sort of where I, where I ended up. So it really did move from, I mean, it's still, it's still a, it still happens in the head. It's still like an intellectual proposition about the metaphor, but then it has to really go into the realm of experience, which is why in the book, each chapter, each metaphor is accompanied by practices because we have to really come to embody the metaphor. It has to move out of the head and into our bodies and into our experience. I'm so intrigued with the words that you're using that I find different from what we normally hear when people are talking about God, specifically that we often ask people and Eliana and I are, I think on the same page here, asking people, oh, do you believe? As opposed to, and I know Eliana loves this question too, it's great to change the question to what is your experience of God? Yeah. Or how is your relationship with God as opposed to do you believe? Because then I can say my relationship is tumultuous <laughs> and filled, you know, just fraught with anxiety and it's still a relationship. Right. Or even and, I'd like to have a relationship, right? Maybe you don't have one, but you'd like to, you know, that's another, which is yes, again, not, I feel very distant, right? Mm -hmm. Not a, not a, and I think for a lot of people, they'd like to have a relationship. They don't even know where to start, you know, but it's not, mm -hmm. I totally agree. I think there's like 2000 years of most of mostly Christian scholastic debate that has sort of infected. And I use that term advisedly. And I, I mean, it transferred and this debate translated to Judaism and, and Islam as well. But I, I, I don't know for sure. My guess is the roots are more in the Christian church, of debates and then, you know, and, and, and philosophy, sort of Western philosophy about God's existence, you know, and, and needing to prove. Whereas if you go to our most ancient checks, it's, they're not proving anything. They're talking about their experience, you know, they're, they're you know, in, in both biblically and rabbinically, I think the, you know, a little bit in, the, in, in some of the rabbinic texts, which are probably later and already exposed. And maybe it's, in, maybe an infection came from Greek philosophy. I, I'm not sure exactly where it came from, probably from Greek philosophy originally. And so for the two, past 2,000 years, belief has been at the center, you know, and, and I think part of the goal of my book is to, to put that aside, and I'm quite explicit about that, to tell people I'm not asking you to believe anything, but to open ourselves up to experience and, and to accessing that experience. And, and I'll, often when I'm teaching this, people will say, are you saying God is a metaphor? I'm saying no. God is a realm of experience that's probably beyond my ability to articulate, I'm, what I'm arguing is that we, we can only access that through metaphor. We can only access time through metaphor. We can only access love through metaphor, right? And do you believe in love is not a very useful question, but how do you love? Who do you love? When do you love? Those are interesting questions. And I think similarly with, with you know, when talking about the realm of the sacred, when we shift the metaphor, we shift the questions and then the questions become much more fruitful. May I take a, a, a quotation Please. from you about Please. metaphor that I think is we're there. And if you wanted to add anything onto it, you say on God, religion and metaphor, you say, I would insist, however, that models of God are not definitions of God, 
but likely accounts of experience, of relating to God with the help of relationships we already know. I don't think that's my quote. I think that's Sally. Um, that that's a that is Sally McFaig. Sally Metaphorical theology. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, that's not my. I just want to be clear. That's not my quote. Yeah. So Sally McFaig is a Christian theologian who writes about metaphor. Yes. 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 We're talking about language to articulate our experience. Which to be which going back to Kaplan, I don't ca- quote Kaplan in the book, but that's basically what Kaplan said. He said we can't do any more than really talk about our own experience, which doesn't mean. The divine isn't real. I mean, it's a huge realm of human experience that we can't dismiss. I, I really believe that. But ultimately, metaphor is speaking to our experience. You know, and the example I give is the example, uh, the metaphor of time is money, which is a very dominant metaphor in our culture. Time is a precious resource or time is a money, you know, time is money all over our language. We buy time, we save time, we waste time, we spend time. And we feel it. We don't just use those words, right? We're sitting in a doctor's office, you know, waiting an hour, you know, past our appointment time. We feel like we're wasting time. But time is not a precious resource. Time is not money. That, you know, it, that's silly, you know, but but we don't need to believe it is to experience it as that, you know, and that, and, it's a, and it's a metaphor that shapes our lives and deeply impacts. And it entered our culture a few hundred years ago. It didn't used to exist. It doesn't exist in every culture. So that's the power of a metaphor to shape our experience. So it's, I think sometimes... People can be dismissive of, well, you're just talking about our experience. You're not talking about God. And I'm saying, no, like these metaphors are ways to get at like some of the deepest part of our experience, but we need the metaphor. Um, and metaphor has the power to shape our reality. So if our dominant metaphor for God is as a distant tyrant, like, what does that say? Like, what are we saying about godly power? What are we saying about the divine? If that's our only metaphor, that's sort of problematic. And maybe there are other metaphors that, you know, help us access power and other parts of our experience in in more wholesome ways. Part of what I think is incredible about the book and the work that you've been doing, right, it's first saying once we see these as metaphors, it kind of lets us play with all of the different colors in the crayon box and look at all these amazing crayons that we haven't really used for many years that are still a part of our tradition and that what you're what you're doing is radical in in the way that you're sharing it but of course if we look at Jewish history it's not like we have so many people saying well actually when we call God king we're being literal so like even last night and i just want to share this cuz knowing that we were having this conversation coming up it was really incredible i am learning with the Chavruta Olat Raya, which are essays on prayer from Rav Cook. And they're really incredible. Lots of mixed metaphors with Rav Cook. But last night, he w- in the book, he was talking about the difference between prayer and Torah. But here, uh, this is an English translation by Rabbi Mike Fewer that I'm getting off of Safaria, and we'll link it in the show notes. This is why the sages permitted descriptions of the Holy One in prayer, because they are a fit aid in feeling the impression of those truths, which are already clear and revealed. And the soul's feeling is best stirred by these descriptions in that humanity is a physical creature. Sometimes an image, which is unrefined in and of itself is precisely what awakens them, right? We're physical creatures with bodies. The language that we put to our experience of God is going to feel like an of this world language. And right, it's not just Rav Cook, it's Animes Me wrote saying, all the prophets only saw images of you. And it's the Kaddish where we say anything we could say about God is la'elam and kolberchatza vishirata, right? Beyond all blessing and song. So I'm wondering if you see other points where you, you connect your offering of metaphor 
not separate from the flow of Jewish history and thought, but within the flow of Jewish history and thought. Oh, for sure. And I think even much earlier than that, there's a pretty early Midrash that says it's it's a comment on, it comes as a Midrash on the giving of Torah in, in Exodus chapter 20, where the divine is addressing the entire you know, Israelite community and says, Anuchi Adonai Elohecha, which is a in, it's singular. I, I am your, I am your God personally. Your, you know, you individually, God who took you out of uh, Egypt. And the midrash goes on to say, you know, the the Israelites encountered, you know, God at 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 Sinai as a scribe and at the sea as a man of war, and you know, they just go on to like talk about these different, but it's just one God, you know. So already the rabbis are saying we understand that. Our language about the divine is shaped by human experience. Then they go and use this, I think, crazy. I can't believe they use this. They say, and the same Midrash goes on to say, it's as if there was a statue. So they're likening God to a statue, which is very interesting. Like this is probably maybe written during Roman times. Is this God is a statue um, and a thousand people see it and each person feels like it's looking directly at them. So this Midrash says two things. One is our experience of the divine is shaped by what's happening in the moment. And the Israelites needed different things. What they needed at Sinai and what they needed at the crossing of the sea and what they needed at different times was different. And it's deeply personal. So how you experience the divine and I experience the divine and you, Ellen, experience the divine, like we're, you know, that it's deeply personal. So that's, that's a relatively early rabbinic text. So, and I think the whole notion of reading things literally is very modern. And, that, and that's the problem. You know, I always sort of admonish my congregants, you know, you're all reading the Bible, like, you know, you know, in a sort of a very Baptist way, you know, which is a very hyper literal way. No, 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 uh, no offense meant to Baptists, but just there's an American English way of reading the Bible. That's not a traditional Jewish way, which is to read it through layers and layers and layers of Midrash. And the whole notion of literal thinking is relatively modern, you know? So when the rabbis, entered into the Torah, they, they were, they had that sense of play. They made these outrageous midrashim. So I think, and they, you know, and they didn't have language like metaphor, you know, this kind of technical language, but I think that's what they were doing. They were, they were just getting into it and playing. And certainly the mystics did that as well. So I, I feel very strongly this book sort of was channeled through me. I, I don't take a lot of, you know, I take some credit for shaping it, but it, it really is like going back. And I think the only place I would differ a bit from some of the more modern commentators like Rav Cook or Kaplan or even Maimonides is there's a, there's a tendency to diminish the metaphoric aspect or the physical aspect to say, well, God is actually something very abstract that we can't actually apprehend. And unfortunately, the only thing we can do is use our bodies and use the physical to get at it. And maybe this is the more feminist part of me, but I, I want to say, like, that's too, that that makes me sad that 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 layering of the commentary, because I think what the the most ancient parts of our of our tradition, the, the folks who wrote the oldest parts of of the Hebrew Bible, understood was we we encounter God right here, and there's nothing less lesser about that, and you can't separate the spirit and the body. We are embodied creatures, and. And even our categories of abstract and physical or spiritual and embodied are, are just made up categories. So I, you know, it's all, you know, at the level of a quark, if I, you know, if we were all quarks, I don't know what we'd be seeing, but we wouldn't be seeing separate bodies. You know, we'd be, we'd be on a completely other level of, of, of experience. So to me, a lot of, because most of the metaphors in the book are biblical, they're not, they're not modern or, or, or even rabbinic. There's one rabbinic metaphor in there. 
it's to go back to a very earth-based culture, you know, a tribal culture that of the you know the folks who wrote the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, who I think really did encounter divinity in nature, in water, in rock, in cloud, in in the vibrations of sound, um, and weren't in any way diminishing that or saying that, that was somehow less than the actual God. You know, the God is really abstract, and these are just ways to to get to it. So. Uh, that's, I think, what I'm trying to do is sort of go a, a little bit against that sort of intellectualized scholastic tradition, which you can see in Rav Cook. You can see, you know, I think ever since Maimonides, you can see it, um, a, sort of an embarrassment about the earlier texts, an embarrassment about the, the nature imagery and the embodied imagery. And I think there's nothing to be embarrassed about. I think it's beautiful, you know, mm. and it gives us access. When I'm teaching and students would say, or I think or still want to say, well, I don't believe in God because, you know, that whole story about God creating the world in six days or, you know, that's not, or the parting of the Red Sea, they point to the big God miracles of Torah. And what I have realized over the years is for me, it was never that far a stretch to take Torah and prayer metaphorically because I said, you don't even have to get to the six days. The minute it says in the first three verses of Torah, God said, to me, that's the first, that's the first, oh, this has to be metaphorical because God doesn't have a voice box and lungs. And, you know, so even the word said has to be taken as a metaphor. And that's, I try to keep that in my mind all the time. And I confess that when I got towards the end of your book, and perhaps you said it at the very beginning and I wasn't listening, but at the end when you said something along the lines of, even the man in the sky, which everybody says, I don't believe in God because I don't believe in that or that king, that even the man in the sky is just a metaphor. And this is after the chapter on fire and the chapter on water and, and, and yet, I was so astounded and relieved and excited and happy to share. Hey, just that's just a metaphor too. That's just a metaphor too. But I had difficult not difficulty. I found myself surprised that duh right. in that way. It's it's an extinct metaphor. It's deep in our consciousness. If you if you come out of the Abrahamic religions, it's just very deep in our consciousness and you have to do work. And again, it's not to get rid of it. I, I it's really important. I mean, at the beginning I I'm critical of that metaphor for you know, the, this, because it sidetracks a lot of people. But the reality is metaphors aren't bad unless they lead to, you know, unwholesome action. But but if any, there's any one metaphor, we say stuck in it, it becomes idolatrous. So the, really, you know, it's it's the additive principle. I think I love the analogy you used, Eliana, of, of the crayons in the crayon box. Like, let's, you know, why would we color only with blue when we have, you know, f- whatever the original box was, 54, you know, colors. And yes, Ellen, that's that's the thing. People, because I've, I've taught this material, and people say, yeah, that's not really God. And I know what they're saying. They're saying, my, really, God is that. The God that knows, acts, judges, loves, does, you know, all those human actions. And if it's not that, then it can't be God, because they're so wedded to that metaphor, uncon- completely unconsciously. That, you know, so I think the first step is to sort of start to see that that's a metaphor, peel it off a little bit. And then I'm sort of asking people just to enter into the other metaphors, try them out, see what happens. And what I found is that when people do that, you know, these other pathways really do open up. You know, and sometimes it's nice for God to be a big human, maybe not a king, but, you know, maybe a, a parent 
or a lover or a teacher. Those are beautiful metaphors. I, I don't want to get rid of them. I just, th- th- those, they don't work all the time in every situation. Other metaphors work better. So it's, it's good to have all, it's good to have the whole crayon box at our, at our disposal. <laughs> Why we hang on to those, to the ones that we can easily get rid of uh, is puzzling to me. May I ask, uh, where does in your thinking today um, or in metaphorical thinking, does process theology come back in for you? And I also wanted to ask you about uh, non-duality that I know the Rabbi J. Michelson has written mm-hmm. a book about it. Does that come into your thinking? Your yeah, so process is in the book. It's the the chapter on becoming. I, I sort of treat it as another metaphor, and it's <clears throat> a very explicit metaphor in 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 the Torah. You know, God is ehia asher ehia. I will be that I will be. And so, in in that chapter, I explore this notion of that's probably the one metaphor I explore that's not concrete. But the notion of God as possibility as becoming, I, I think that speaks to a lot of people. Um, and it's and it's part of our reality. It's part of physical reality. The you know that. We're constantly in a process of, of, of becoming our, you know, our bodies are shedding cells and new cells are getting added. And, you know, so, so I explore, I, I don't go as deep as I do in some of my articles about process theology, but it's there in the book in, in that chapter. I'm not that interested in it, maybe I could say, because I think for me, entering into the different metaphors is more important. And I think some of the metaphors, I think, so duality is the notion that I'm here and God is over there, or that God is somehow separate from the created world that, you know, that's part of classic, classic theology, I would say, certainly Christian and Jewish, I can't speak to Islam with much authority. But I think it's still coming from the metaphor of God as a person, I I think is the problem. I think the problem of duality is a, is a metaphor problem. So for example, once we shift to met the metaphor of God is water, you know, very famous statement in the early, you know, very beginning of the, of the Torah of the Bible, you know, that humans are created, but Selim Elohim in the divine image, you know, some medieval Christian art took that very literally. God must look like us. You know, if God, if we're creating God's image, that means, you know, God looks like a, a white man, you know, a European man. And then, you know, we have Da Vinci's and other people's paintings, but what if God is water? You know, then it means something totally else. Then it means, you know, uh, we're 70% water. Like we're, God is us. We're God. Same thing, you know, with God is rock. I, I quote a, a Christian theologian who talks about God as earth and earth is in us. We're made of minerals. So I, I don't know. Is that non-dual? Is that dual? I have no idea. But I find non-dualism a little bit abstract and and, a, and an attempt, I think, in some sort of neo-Hasidic realms, which which some of my teachers come from, and I, it's an, it's been important work. There's, I think, there's a metaphor of God as one or oneness that is being held up as a definition. I personally am not interested in definitions of God. I'm interested in metaphors. Sometimes I actually need God to not be me, and that's okay. You know, non-dualism really can't deal with with with, with pain and suffering as as much. It's it's hard. It's hard to say this is all God and something terrible just happened to me. You know, so what does that what does that even mean? But you know, as I I talk in the book, and if you'd like, I can read that little part. Um, you know, God is water was enormously helpful to me when my spouse was dying of cancer. And, and that metaphor was really helpful. But saying everything is God would not have been helpful in that moment. Actually, it would have been sort of insulting. 
So I don't think there's any one size fits all. I think we need different metaphors in different in different times. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it does. I'm very interested in it because I'm thinking also about what you said about your original inclination towards social justice. And so I find myself wanting to come back and ask you now about what metaphors work for you in a social justice sense. I ask because for me, process theology and non-dualism helps me to think about, oh, if I, if water's a good God metaphor for me and I'm 70% water, then the part of me that is doing social justice work is kind of like you might say, you know, God flowing through me in that sense, or process that that the God, that Selim that is within me, the God form in me, um, my actions are influencing the whole process of the universe, whether they be large yes. or small yeah. in, in certain ways, and just how active I can be and accept my own responsibility for God's and the universe's positive evolution. I think there's not one metaphor. I mean, I'll just tell you what I touch on in the book. I think in the water chapter, I actually do. I use I, I use water as the metaphor to address how do we talk about godly power if we don't want to use the you know the metaphor of God as a king and that kind of power, which is coercive power, the power to make other beings do your will. Water is incredibly powerful, so I do. I actually think it's, it's a useful metaphor, and I, I explore that there and the notion of a line and in the bible biblically the prophets use uh, you know sort of justice as a fluid and and the metaphor of of god and and justice as a fluid and and how do we align ourselves with the godly flow that's one when i i had to i was i think afraid of it but i when i decided i had to look at fire um i had to look at all the parts about god getting really angry and and in in the tanakh in the hebrew bible and, and god gets angry when injustice is done so i had to look at anger um, as a white person, I, you know, had, I was looking at the, the rage of African-Americans in you know, the summer of 2020 when I was writing that chapter and, 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 you know, and, and honoring that anger and figuring out how is that kind of anger, which sometimes erupts in fire that's, uh, can be even self-destructive, but, but can't be, you know, diminished. So fire, I think is another important metaphor when we talk about our, our, our rage at injustice and a necessary, sometimes necessary destruction to create something new. I think sometimes, you know, I would say sometimes we white folks want to keep everything very nice and, and, and friendly. Um, and we're not as open as we should be to anger and rage and, and, and maybe some necessary destruction that has to happen. So that, that can be an important metaphor. And I talk a little bit about rock. God is rock. You know, when I was visiting folks who were really for no reason sitting in jail in, you know, 2017, 2018, because of their mm-hmm. immigration status and just their incredible faith that kept them grounded in like really horrific conditions, you know, and the sense of God is their rock and, and rock is a powerful image, you know, for oppressed peoples over, over the centuries. So I, I don't think there's one metaphor. I think it's, again, which part of the experience are we talking about? Are we talking about encountering suffering? Are we talking about what inspires us to do change? Are we talking about how, you know, oppressive forces operate in the universe and how do we address them? So water, fire, rock, all of those I've found to be quite, quite powerful. And yeah, I think Ehiya can also be beautiful in the sense of what, you know, what are we aspiring to? What, what, how do we become our best selves? How do we help our society become its best self? So I think all of those are, are, are a piece of it. I want to take us back just for a minute to thinking about a person who is perhaps holding on to that metaphor of God as king, God as person, 
I'm thinking about a session I did with families and a young man who said, God is a puppet master controlling the world and I don't believe in God. And as we said, it was so hard for me to say like, well, what if God was something else? But I also think those questions, especially from like middle schoolers that we might be working with, is often about what God has the power to do and what God has the power to make change in the world. Because either God is all powerful and can act in the world as God acted in the world in Torah times. If so, then God isn't using God's power to make the world better. So what's up with that? But if not, why are we praying and reading about God anyway, if God doesn't actually have the power to do anything? And I feel like that's the place where a lot of kind of middle schoolers in their spiritual development and really in their development as people where things are like black and white, they're one thing or another thing. And it often takes years, right, for someone to have a more complex or complicated or nuanced understanding. And yet this is when the kids are in our classes and this is when the kids are in B'nai Mitzvah tutoring. And sometimes I feel like among educators, we get this feeling like, well, we have to help them figure it all now because there's no guarantee that they're going to walk into a Jewish space again when this is over. So we have to we have to do it now. I'm wondering, yeah, your thoughts on education, how how we talk about God with kids and that idea of what does God have the power to do? How does that show forth in your work? Yeah, and I'm hoping the, the next version of my book will be a young person's version. I need, I need to work on that. That's my next project. I think I would suggest that if a Jewish educator or any educator, a uh, religious educator, is educating kids that the that the God of the Torah is all-knowing and all-powerful, they are actually not reading the text and they are teaching it very poorly. I mean, the Torah is extremely clear within the first six chapters that God creates things and then has no idea what's going to happen. You know, and by chapter six, you know, we've, we've gone from the chapter one, everything's good. God loves the creation. Everything's good. Chapter six, oy vey, what did I do? This is God talking, right? I made these humans and they're completely evil. Like, you know, and... And I've, and, I've, and I've got to start all over again. So God creates humans. Humans have free will. They make bad choices or they make a choice, whether it's bad or not, we can debate. And then from there, just humans go into horrible things. So the Torah is extremely clear. We are given choice. God does not have that kind of power. Again, that all the, the all-powerful, all-knowing, whatever, I think that comes from Greek philosophy. It does not come from the Torah. It starts to edge in into rabbinic texts, but it's not the Torah. So if, if someone is... So I have to, so I think the Torah is being taught improperly. I would say it's like sort of Torah malpractice. So if the Torah is being taught properly, then kids, then I would turn it around. Then I say this to kids. If kids say, why did God do this? I said, I don't know what God does or doesn't do. The Torah was written by humans. Question I would ask is why would someone write this story this way? What, what's the story about? I mean, when I study Breshit, you know, the creation story with, with seventh graders on the way to Bar Mitzvah, I'm like, okay. You know, I tell the kids about a rabbinic debate, you know, Hillel versus Shammai, humans should have been created, should never have been created. What do you think? I mean, what do you think is the Torah telling us? Should we have been created or not? Like, we've been debating this for like 2,000 years. That's what we should be engaging kids with, not can God do this or God do that. So that's one answer. I think if we teach Torah properly, it should keep kids' minds open because the, because the Torah is actually much more complex. The second thing I would say, and this is an insight from process theology, process theology points out that the kind of power usually attributed to the divine is called coercive power. And coercive power is the power to get other people to do what I want them to do. It's the kind of absolute power that most human, most people don't wield, but perhaps emperors in ancient times did wield that, i.e. they could actually put you to death for no good reason. And that was always the kind of power that God was imagined as having. Process theology says actually that's impossible because if God has all that power, then other creatures have no power. And then the very 
word power becomes meaningless because then because power means the ability to affect change. So that kind of power actually doesn't exist on a cosmic level. Process theology suggests that God has something called persuasive power, which in the water chapter, I talk about water having, you know, water runs over things and smooths them, runs through earth and creates a canyon. It's, it's constant power, it's pressure, it can be subtle, it can be overflowing, it's, but it's the kind of power that a teacher exerts or a parent exerts, you know. So you, you teaching a kid can't make them study Hebrew, you can, you know, encourage them, you can, you know, you can incentivize them, you can maybe punish them if they don't, I don't know, but you can't make them. And that's, and that's actually what power is. And so that's another way to think about godly power. And, and I would say to a young person or an older person, you know, the, the Torah begins with a choice and it ends with a choice. I think the Torah is very clear about the kind of power that the divine wields. It's persuasive power. The first humans are given the choice, eat, you know, gain consciousness or not. They decide to gain consciousness. At the very end of, you know, Deuteronomy, there's Moses saying to the people, I've put before you a choice, blessing or curse, life or death. It's up to you. No one's going to make you do anything. It's up to you. You might suffer enormously if you make the right choice, not individually as a species. Here we are. We have reaped, you know, we are reaping the fruits of our series of bad choices, you know, and endangering life on the planet. That's the kind of power that the Torah thinks the divine uh, has. What kind of power created this universe? I don't know. Like that, that sort of is, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> you know, I have to turn to physicists to, to maybe to, to answer that question. So I, I think if we're really honest about the texts, they're actually great for these kind of conversations. It just, it's these other, it's these dominant metaphors that aren't in the text have been dominating our thinking, dominating our teaching. And I think really just, I don't know, perverting it almost, perverting, you know, what, what the actual teachings are. So I think we have to reclaim them. That's my little diatribe. <laughs> I mean, I'm so grateful for your diatribe, and I'm also grateful for a forthcoming version of, of God is here for young people. Yeah, it might take me <laughs> another 10 years, but hopefully one, one day. Yes. Let's we'll keep talking to you about that. I'm wondering kind of as we round the corner towards the end of our conversation, but more learning, because listener, I hope that you will go get a copy for yourself of God is here. We'll put a link to do that in the show notes, of course. I found it really powerful. Just to say a little personally, I've been in a place of feeling insecure insecure and unmoored in my life. And I had put down the book and then I was like sitting in a hotel room, having COVID, rethinking all my life decisions. And I open up the book and it's the Eheya chapter. And I almost threw the book across the room. I'm like, this is too on the nose. Like, <laughs> I guess I needed this. And I have found those practices really helpful. I'm wondering right now for you, is there a metaphor or a practice that is calling to you or that is feeling particularly resonant for you right now. And I'm wondering if you could lead us and our listeners in a practice that we could do together. I don't think I ever am like in hanging out in one metaphor, you know, at any particular time, I think it's more what's going on in, in the moment. You know, I, I do spiritual direction monthly and sometimes, you know, my spiritual director who I, you know, played with these metaphors a lot with her as I was writing the book, you know, will sort of ask me, what is God in this moment? I never know until I, I say, you know, and sometimes it's very human, you know, like, oh, I need God to hold my hand, you know, or sometimes the image comes to me of, of rock or water. Why don't I do a chant with you all? And it's really coming back to what we were talking about, Ellen, sort of, you know, dual, non-dual and a different kind, a different way of approaching that. So, uh, when my spouse Gina was uh, in her last months, I mean, I didn't know it was the last months of her life, but I knew it was, you know, the end was approaching. She had she had breast cancer, metastatic cancer. Um, there was a chant 
uh, by uh, a, a chant of a verse from Isaiah, uh, the, the music uh, written by my, my colleague, my teacher, uh, my friend, uh, Shefa Gold. And in Hebrew, it's Kita Avorba Maim Itcha Ani Uva Neharot Lo Yishtafucha, which means when you pass through the waters, I am with you. I won't let the rivers overwhelm you. So I was writing, I was working on the water chapter and learned this chant. And Gina was, you know, dealing with, with chemo and, and all the horribleness of that. I said, like, okay, well, if God is the water, then what does it mean? And then in the I in this verse is God speaking through the prophet. When you pass through the waters, I am with you. I won't let the rivers overwhelm you. So, you know, God is capital R reality. These are the waters that I'm in. They're waters that Gina and I would not choose to be in. They're overwhelming waters. And what's the promise here? The promise is that even in the waters, the divine is with me and it will not let, allow me to become overwhelmed. And so the question becomes not how do I handle this or, 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 you know, God, why are you doing this to me? Or why is this happening to me? It's, wow, how do I navigate this? How do I keep my head above water? And, you know, and that's, a, and I find that a useful question. You know, how do I navigate this? So let me just do that. Is that, is that with your permission, I'll, I'll do the chant. I can send you guys the link to that if you'd like to link to it on, on Rabbi Sheffa's uh, page. So it goes like this. And uh, and as we chant it, just, uh, you know, if there's anything that's feeling overwhelming to you, to see see where the chant takes you. Kita avor bamaim itcha ani itcha ani Kita avor bamaim itcha Ani itcha ani uva neharot lo yishtafucha lo yishtafucha uva neharot lo yishtafucha lo yishtafucha when you pass through the waters i am with you Yes, I am with you. When you pass through the waters, I am with you. Yes, I am with you. I won't let the rivers overwhelm you. I will be with you. I won't let the rivers overwhelm you. I will be with you. And if we were really doing that practice, we'd sit and chant for five to 10 minutes, but that's the, that's the chant. And I find it a really powerful practice in those moments. I'm not feeling it this second, but in those times, if you're, one is feeling a little bit overwhelmed or wondering how you're going to make it through turbulent waters, it's, it's, it's a beautiful practice. Wow. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thank you so, so much, Rabbi Toa, for this beautiful and inspiring and meaningful conversation. I think it's one I'll be returning to again and again. Thanks for joining us in the Light Lab today. My pleasure. Really great to talk with you both. And thank you, Ellen, as always. And thank you so much for listening. Our podcast is edited by Christy Dodge. Thank you, Christy. Our show notes are done by Yaffa Englander. Thank you, Yaffa. You can find us on social media at thelight.lab. Visit our website at lightlab.co to follow along with the copious show notes. Learn more about what you have been hearing about in this podcast so far and check out all of our past episodes. We are rounding the corner soon on our Amidah journey. So if you need to catch up, definitely take a listen there. And we hope to be learning with you again very soon. Bye, y'all.
Thank you.